episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Bamboo HR. Do you run a business or work in HR? Bamboo HR can manage all your employee data and automate countless tasks in one easy-to-use system. Get an extended 14-day free trial at bamboohr.com fool. That's bamboohr.com fool. Also, thanks to NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hello, bro. Hello, Allison. So today, we are going to welcome Megan Brinsfield into the studio to offer up some tax, end-of-year tax guidance. You're like, wait, the year isn't even close to being over, but no. It sort of is. Is it? Yeah. Uh-huh. We only got, we, I counted. We have less than 11 weeks left in the year. But most people don't start thinking about their taxes until... Six months from now. But bro's yeah, but already then, listening to Christmas that's, music. That's, so. that's true. I was listening, true. Christmas bro, listening to Christmas music. All right, we digress. The point is, is that we've got Megan Brinsfield on the show to offer up some end of year tax guidance because you are so good with your money, you are already worrying about your taxes, and that's what we love about you, Motley Full Answers listeners. <laughs> All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Full Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Well, bro, we just had a heck of a fright. On Tuesday, the Dow dropped 800 points, the most since February. Do you remember that horrible day in February? I do remember that horrible day. Do you really? Yeah, yeah, I do. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't. (laughs) Anyway, because this is being taped in the past and you, dear listener, are in the future, I can't even begin to fathom what calamity has hence ensued. Cats and dogs living together, total (laughs) anarchy. But should we be surprised? After all, it is October, which means the October effect is in full force. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, the October effect. <laughs> Have we talked about this on the show before? I don't know, but I will say that like one of the first three articles I wrote for The Motley Fool back in 1999 was on this very topic. But let's hear your take on it. <laughs> here's, my, here's my hot take on the October effect. Do you remember whether it's a real thing or not? Because that's what we're going to talk about. Uh well, I know that some of the worst days for the stock market have happened in October. Oh, have they? So here we go. The October effect is the idea that October is just a particularly bad month for the stock market. It's also known as the Mark Twain effect. Did you know that? I didn't know that. It comes from the line in Mark Twain's Puddinghead Wilson, which means I get to break out my Southern lawyer voice. Oh, I can't wait. October. This is one of the peculiarly dangerous months to speculate in stocks. The others are July, January, September, April, November, May, March, June, December, August, and February. Very good. Thank very you. Good. <laughs> so, yeah, basically, October is the word particularly dangerous to speculate in stocks, as is every other month in the year. Right. So, that's why they call, also call it the Mark Twain effect. But seriously, let's look at October. The panic of 1907 happened in October. I don't remember that one. That as was well. a thing. <laughs> Black Thursday and both Black Mondays happened in October in 1929 and 1987. The 2008 Great Recession kicked off in October. According to Zero Hedge, five out of the 10 worst days in the market happened in October. Hmm. But downturns in 1987, 1990, 2001, and 2002 all bottomed out in October. In fact, the same day that the market just fell 800 points in October was the anniversary of when the Dow Jones bottomed out in 2002, having fallen 38.75% from its 2000 highs. Hmm. Investopedia says that from a historical perspective, October has marked the end of more bear markets than it has acted as the beginning. So maybe October means it's actually a good thing to celebrate. 
maybe we should take a look at some of the other months. Like, say, September? Which is worse. It is. September is actually statistically the worst month yep. for investors, according to many researchers, including Yardeni Research. September has had 47 down months compared to 39 up months since 1928. And on average, investors lose 1% in September, and the average monthly return in October is 04. Uh, the best month on average, you want to guess? It's December, I think. December or January. It's actually July. July. Oh, no. Uh, no. July is at <laughs> 1.6 on average, and December, you're right, is 1.4. Right. So there's a, there's an old adage called sell in May and go away, um, where you're supposed to stay out of the market for a certain number of months. You do miss July, but you. the question was, okay, if I sell in May, when do I get back do in get the back market? In? Yeah, yeah. It was often Halloween. Like you get back in, uh, uh, yes. Okay. The, the, it actually has some mixed results, but because you miss some of those really bad markets, selling mango away looked pretty good, depending on what year you're looking at. No. All right, well, let's dig into some research about whether October effect is just a silly superstition or not. Because a lot of people will say that this is whatever. Now, some will go so far as to say, yeah, there's something there, but it's mostly a self fulfilling prophecy. So we say it's an adage, and so people actually follow it, therefore. People are investing, therefore the markets do fall. Um, I did see an article in the BBC where uh, they spoke with Lily Fang. She's a professor at, Mass- at MIT, and she blames uh, the fact that all of us are coming off of our summer highs, and when reality of fall sets in, our bubbles burst. Essentially, all of the people who spend their time obsessing over the markets go on holiday over the summer. And so they are delaying their reaction to market uncertainty until they get back to work in September. And then they're like, oh, that's right. While I was on the beach (laughs) drinking Mai Tais, everything's awful now. (laughs) Right? And so so her and her colleagues uh, have tested their thesis by looking at differences in school holidays in 47 countries. And they found that the returns are, on average, 1% lower in the months after major school holidays. Their basic conclusion is that there's some market inefficiency because many professional investors are just plain absent from the market and huh. on a yacht, I assume. I don't know what they do with their time. All right, writing for the Wall Street Journal, Jason Zweig blames the availability bias. And that's human tendency to judge how likely an event is by how easily we can recall vivid examples of it. So the horrific losses of October 20, 2008 are hard to forget. Uh, any day with the word black in front of it is kind of hard to forget. Whereas the milder gains of 7% in October of 2015 and 11% in 2011 are hard to remember. Uh, Zweig also pointed to research that fall just generally makes us sadder and less optimistic. So average returns on U.S. Treasuries appear to be higher in fall than in spring, suggesting that investors are seeking safety in darker months. Um, Stock analysts' earnings forecasts are less optimistic in fall and winter than they are in summer and spring. So all that's interesting, but what should we do about it, whether there is an effect or not? I'm going to go to Warren Buffett for his advice. Sounds good to me. Sounds like a good guy. Now, all of these, I'm going to offer some of his advice, all of which Molly Full Answers listeners have heard before. But it's worth reminding you of because, again, you're in the future and I have no idea what hellscape of <laughs> financial disintegration you are currently living in five days from the taping of this episode. It could be bad, Rick. We don't know. All right. So, first piece of, war- of Warren Buffett advice is that the most important quality for an investor is temperament, not intellect. So we here at The Motley Fool often preach about how you need to be able to ride out the storm 
and keep calm and carry on and all that good stuff. And if an 800-point drop in the Dow is keeping you from sleeping, well, then maybe you need to pull back your exposure there in the market. Did I get that advice right? That's pretty good. I feel like I'm pretty much just... That's pretty good. All right. And of course, there's Warren Buffett's advice of being fearful when others are greedy and to be greedy only when others are fearful. We here at Motley Fool Answers don't necessarily like the idea of timing the market, but I know there are some analysts here at the Motley Fool who maybe have stocks on their watch list that wouldn't mind getting it a little bit on sale. And my final piece of Warren Buffett advice is that the stock market is a device for transferring money from the impatient to the patient. By which we mean, of course, that we don't want you to be buying and selling stocks in all oh, within the month of October and the patient investor holds on for the long term. Because after all, in the long term, the stock market tends to go up and to the right, which we like. That's right. Do you want to offer any other additional advice? No. Okay. <laughs> so let's go back to that Puddenhead Wilson quote. October, that is one of the peculiarly dangerous months to speculate in stocks. So yeah, I would agree. It's always kind of a bad month to speculate in stocks uh, and make, by which I mean, of course, making short term bets and day trading. But long term, bottoms up investing in companies you believe in, well, that's always in season. And that, bro, is what's up. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from Bamboo HR. If you have your own small or medium sized business, or if you work in HR, you know how crazy it can be. Spreadsheets, paperwork, employee issues, and more. That's where Bamboo HR can help. Bamboo HR can manage all your employee data and automate countless tasks in one easy to use system. So you can focus on people. Right now, Bamboo HR is giving our listeners a special extended free trial. That's right, try out Bamboo HR a full 14 days free by going to bamboohr.com slash fool. Again, that's bamboohr.com slash fool. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is also brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. This isn't some one-size-fits-all software. With industry-specific support for a broad range of businesses, NetSuite works the way your business works. And bonus, the power of the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. Motley Fool podcast listeners can get their free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth. You'll learn how to acquire new customers, increase profits, and finally get real visibility into your cash flow. You can get this free guide at netsuite.com slash fool. It's October, which means we're 10 months into the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. The yeah. new-ish law. <laughs> <don't know. laughs> you said that with such enthusiasm. I was Thanks, like, oh. Jonzik, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, the newest tax law that was passed at the end of 2017. Hopefully, you're among the majority of Americans who have indeed seen a lower tax bill, likely around a few hundred dollars to maybe a couple thousand dollars if you're a typical American household. Unfortunately, there are households that will end up having to pay more tax due to a loss of some deductions, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But regardless of your situation, there may be some steps you can still take to reduce this year's tax bill before 2019 rolls around. And here to help us discuss these strategies is our resident tax expert, Megan Brinsfield Yay! of Motley Fool Wealth Management. A sister company of the Motley Fool. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but so I thought before we talk about the tax tips, maybe we should just hit as a reminder some of the highlights of the new tax law. So First of all, there's still seven tax brackets. 
but lower overall rates except for the bottom two, and it takes more income to move up to a higher tax bracket. So in that sense, most people probably will be paying less taxes. Big thing is higher standard deduction, right? $12,000 for singles, $24,000 for married folks, which will probably drop the percentage of people who itemize from a third in 2017 down to maybe just like 10% this year. The vast majority will not itemize. Yeah, I think itemizing was already kind of something that few people did, and now even fewer will do it. Right. Um, there's elimination of many assorted deductions, too many to list, but some of the more common ones were unreimbursed employee expenses, tax prep expenses, sorry, Megan and all your CPA colleagues, yeah. uh, moving expenses. So a lot of those things have just gone away. Also, the uh, elimination of exemptions, but the expanded child tax credit, which is good. And perhaps one of the more controversial was the limitation on the SALT deduction, the state and local taxes deduction. So now the total amount that you can deduct is $10,000 per year. And this is probably one of the bigger reasons why some people actually will be paying, paying higher taxes this year. Than last year. Yeah, exactly. And you hear a lot of uh, cries from higher tax states, people living in places like California or New York, where they're paying 10% annually in taxes and they have to, in general, earn a lot to live in those places. And so they would have had a much higher deduction under the old plan. Um, I actually just did my taxes last night. Um, I'm, I'm in an am an extender, and I was um, looking at how much benefit that provided me, and I'm by far not earning anywhere near what a lot of people in California and New York are. And so I can definitely feel that pain. The good news is that on the flip side, a lot of people who are itemizing are families that have kids and will benefit from a much higher child tax credit than has been seen in the past. The expansion of that was very large. So now, if you're a married couple, you can have up to $400,000 of income before your child tax credit starts getting phased out. And it used to be something like 110000 right. So that's a huge band of people that that uh, credit is now open to. So just to be clear, when the law was passed at the end of last year, um, a lot of states tried to get around this limitation on the SALT deduction. But in the end, none of those are going to work, right? Right. The IRS said, um, sort of squashed those workarounds with proposed regulations that they issued over the summer. And the workaround was the state would create this charitable uh, entity and people could make charitable contributions, which are still deductible to an unlimited, almost unlimited extent. And um, the state would then give you an offsetting credit for your charitable contributions to that fund. Uh, and the IRS said, no, that doesn't pass the smell test. You're getting services back equal to the amount that you're paying, which I'm sure someone somewhere could argue against. Um, but it sort of um, put an end to those potential workarounds that were alive and brewing for about six months. Gotcha. Um there were a lot of, but a lot about the new law had to do with corporate tax rates as well. We're not going to get into those. We're going to talk mostly about individual tax rates. That said, for those who are business owners, one big change was the twenty percent pass-through deduction. What exactly was that, and is that? And if, I know for, there was some confusion about it, and there was only relatively recent some clarification about who can take that and who can't. 
Right. So the biggest thing is it defines pass-through entities a bit more broadly than it has in the past among tax um, professionals. So it used to be things like LLCs, S-corporations, and partnerships were pass-through entities. Now under this law, you're actually adding in sole proprietorships, which are people who basically never bothered to set up a business entity uh, and allows them to deduct 20% of their net income, assuming they don't make too much. So this is a place where um, what is earned inside the business actually coordinates with everything else you earn on your return. And if you're mad at your spouse for messing up your taxes, they can do it particularly well in this area as well, because you're looking not only at business income, but if your total income exceeds uh, a threshold, I think it's one. 157,000 if you are single and 315,000 if you're married. Um, so if you have a high earning spouse, that can kick you out of being qualified to take this deduction on your business. I seem to recall reading that after this was passed, there were some people who were thinking, like, I'm an employee now, but I love the idea of this 20, 20% deduction on everything I earn. Maybe I'll just become an independent contractor and take this. But that, that also has been somewhat squashed, right? I don't think it's been as formally squashed as it has been just uh, impractical. A lot of people, like being an employee or a contractor, comes with different assumptions around the work that you're doing and who has control over your time and who's responsible for a lot of expenses. So if you say, yeah, I want to be a contractor, suddenly you're signing up to take care of your own health care and computer and um, work expenses that might have been covered by your employer in the past. And that's not necessarily going to equal out with this uh, deduction going forward. Um, the other thing is that the law says if you have a business that is solely relying on your skills, you can't really separate yourself from the business entity, then you're even further limited in taking this 20% deduction. Gotcha. You know what I think it would be time for, Allison? What's that? How about a fun tax fact? Hey, that's a great idea, and I just happen to have one for you. Excellent. For this fun tax fact, we're going to go to Russia. So, Tsar Peter the Great was born in 1672, and he worked very hard to westernize Russia during his reign. And part of that was getting men to shave. So, apparently, he went on this big tour of Europe, and he comes back, and they're having this party, and they're like, oh, Peter, we're so bad. glad you're back. And he's like, oh, my God, I'm so happy to see you, too. And gives, him, gives all these noblemen of Russia a big hug at this party, and then proceeds to take out a pair of scissors and snips off their beards. And he's like, yeah, we're done with that here. So that's, uh, he really didn't like beards. So <laughs> what other way to encourage men to shave than to tax beards? Really? Yes. So he put a tax on having a beard. An impoverished beggar could retain his uh, beard for a yearly sum of two kopecks, while a well-off merchant would have to pay 100 rubles to keep his beard. And then, uh, once they paid their money, they would be given a small coin to carry around that said, tax paid. The medal also said, the beard is a useless burden. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, despite the fees widespread on popularity, because prior to this, having a beard was actually a very big manly thing to have in Russia, um, this tax essentially remained in place until 1772, 47 years after Peter's death. So, as an infrequent shaver, was there a stubble tax? I mean, did your beard have to be a certain length for it to qualify as the beard? I don't know. You don't know? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll have to dig further into Russian facial hair history to find that one. Okay. 
That would be uh, a, like a hipster tax today. I, guess. I like it. <laughs> uh, so before we get into the year-end tax tips, um, a little bit about what I think is one of the big planning opportunities, thanks to the tax law, and that is because we are at such lower tax rates, to me, a Roth retirement account makes more sense than ever. Um, you're, when you contribute to a Roth, you're giving up the tax break today, but in exchange for taking out your money tax-free in the future. Um, I certainly think that's something to consider to change in terms of your contribu- contributions, but also maybe converting some of that money to a Roth. Are you seeing that in what you guys do in Botley Full Wealth Management? Yeah, absolutely. We've had uh, a lot of retirees actually reach out to us and say, you know, I, I've heard you guys talk about Roths. I didn't think I had the opportunity before because I was in such a high tax bracket. And with this alleviation of my tax bracket, maybe I can consider it now. And so we are seeing a lot of people that are converting more um, than they thought they would or entertaining it as an option where it wasn't before. Right. The other benefit of Roths, too, is that uh, in a Roth IRA, there are no required minimum distributions, a topic we'll get to later on. But then you can just leave the money tax-free. You don't have to start taking that money out at 70 and a half. One thing about the new tax law is, though, that in the past, when you converted to a Roth, you could change your mind by October of the following year in something called a recharacterization. Mm-hmm. You can't do that anymore. So if you're going to convert, you got to make sure you really want to do it and you have the money to pay the taxes. Because when you convert, you do pay taxes on that conversion. Yeah, and this flips our traditional advice on its head a little bit because we used to say if you're going to do a Roth conversion, do it in January, and then you have 20 months to see how it does and maybe uh, reverse course if you decide it wasn't a good decision. And now we're telling people wait until the end of the year when you're more certain about the rest of your income so that you don't, you know, accidentally push yourself into a higher tax bracket. Got it. All right, so let's move into year-end tax tips. Unless we have a funny tax fact to oh, hit we first. we sure do! And this time, I'm going to take you to China. So, while most countries tax cigarettes in order to prevent smoking, in China, one province decided to kind of do the opposite. So, in 2009... <laughs> That's what we need is more smokers. That's basically it. Really? In, in the Hubei province in China, they decided to require people to smoke a quota of cigarettes or risk paying a fine. So the goal was because there are many local cigarette manufacturers, and so oh, they boy. wanted to prop up the economy and also have people pay the taxes on those cigarettes as well. So um, teachers had a quota to smoke, and one teacher was saying how uh, there would be people that would come by and check ashtrays, and if your ashtray had cigarettes in it from com- from cigarette manufacturers outside of the province, you would get fined. What? Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, so anyway, yes. So that's what they did. They taxed people to try to get them to smoke more. One out of every three cigarettes, fun fact, in the world is smoked in China, according to the WHO. So smoking over there is a pretty big deal. Um, thanks to taxing people to do it more. So there you go. Well, that is a fun tax (laughs) fact. That's fun. (laughs) All right. So let's talk a little bit about what you can do before the end of the year. And these are some things that you can do to hopefully lower your taxes by December 31st. I'm just going to tick off a few of these. Probably you're familiar with some of them. Contribute to a 401k, a traditional 401k, or a similar employer-sponsored plan you have until the following year's tax deadline to contribute to an IRA. But you have to contribute to your 401k by December 31st. 
um, contribute to a 529. Uh, 529, as long as you use it for qualified education expenses, comes out tax-free. You don't get a federal deduction. But depending on your state, you might get a deduction. And for some states, you don't even have to contribute to the state plan. You just get a deduction for contributing to the plan. And furthermore, as part of the new tax law, now up to $10,000 a year from 529 can be used for not just college, but elementary and secondary school expenses. So the tax law has expanded the, the ways you can use a 529. Um, charitable contributions. And Megan, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. First of all, you have to itemize. So for a lot of these people, they really won't get much tax benefit from contributing from, from charitable donations. Am I correct on that? Yeah, if you're on the bubble of between itemizing and not, um, the charitable deductions, you're going to see some zone where you're not getting a full benefit. Um, and that's unfortunate because a lot of people do contribute for the tax benefits. Now, there's one way, though, you can try to get a benefit from that, and that is like lumping or bunching your contributions together in one year. Right. I like talking to people about lumping and bunching. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a really fun party technique. That's a bonus tax fact yeah, right there. Yeah. Uh, but essentially, if you are, let's say you're capping out at your $10,000 of deductible state and local taxes, and you your only other deduction would be charitable contributions. What you might want to do is uh, perhaps not make any charitable contributions one year and then double up the following year so that you are getting benefit from the standard deduction, which is higher in one year, and maximizing the use of your charitable deductions in the next year. Um, so we have actually seen this quite a bit with um, our clients in wealth management, that they might utilize this bunching technique uh, by contributing to a donor-advised fund, which is kind of front-loading a bunch of uh, charitable contributions in one year, um, and then you can dole out from that fund um, over time to the charities of your choice. One thing that you can do, whether you have itemized or not, is to donate appreciated stock. So talk a little bit about the benefits of doing that. And then we're talking about stock that's outside of a retirement account for this. Right. So if you hold a stock outside of a retirement account, and it has also um, been held more than one year, you have um, this long-term capital gain that's built in. And when you donate that stock to a charity, you can take the fair market value as a deduction. Um, that is opposed to selling the stock, recognizing the gain, paying the tax on the gain, and donating the net cash. Um, so a lot of people, their hang-up with this is, if they have a position that they've held onto and they've seen it run, um, they like seeing that uh, in their brokerage account. You know, I like having you know Berkshire and being able to see its growth. Um, and what we recommend for those folks is doing uh, a donate and replace strategy, where you are donating the stock and getting the deduction at the full market value. And again, avoiding the capital gain. Avoiding the capital gain, and then rebuying the stock at the same price where you donated it. So you are basically getting this free step up in basis when you do that. Um, another thing that people have to think about for the end of the year is required minimum distributions um, from traditional retirement accounts by the time you're age 70 and a half to something that you should keep in mind. If you have several IRAs, you only have to take the RMD from one IRA. But if you still have uh, 401ks or anything like that, you have to take the RMD from each individual account. Right. right. Yeah, and if you have a Roth 401k sitting out there, 
and you're over 70 and a half, that also applies for right. RMDs. Right. Then the way to get around that would be just to transfer it to a Roth IRA. Right. Um, this is uh, something just to avoid, and that is uh, if you own mutual, if you're thinking of buying an actively managed mutual fund outside of a retirement account, this is the time of year when mutual funds make their capital gains distributions. Mm -hmm. And you have to pay taxes on those gains whether you've owned the fund for 10 years or 10 days. Um, and you don't want to be paying capital gains taxes on a fund that you've only owned for 10 days. So, if you're going to buy an actively managed fund, really even index funds and ETFs, probably not so much, but really any fund, if you're thinking of buying it outside a retirement account at this time of year, it's a good idea to contact the fund company to see if they plan on. They often will have estimations of what gains distributions they're going to make. Um, always popular topic at this time of year tax loss harvesting. Um, it's essentially selling an investment. At a capital loss, could be a stock, but it could be a bond. And the and for the last, well, definitely for the last year and maybe even two years, depending on your the bonds you own, they could be down. Mm -hmm. Sell it at a loss, get that capital loss. It can offset gains or up to three thousand dollars of ordinary income. That's the basic idea. You, I'm right. sure, have have seen this in action quite a bit. Anything that trips people up, of course, there's the wash sale rule, for example. Right, the wash sale rule, um, where you just have to watch out for repurchasing those stocks within a 30-day window before and after. Um, Plus, all the the workaround that, right? Like you can't sell it in your taxable account and then buy it in your IRA, right? Or right. or buy an option on it. There are lots of ways that people get around it, but a lot of that time that'll trip you up. Yeah, or even you sell it and then you have your spouse buy it in their yeah. account. That's also um, something that the IRS doesn't like. Um, I think a lot of uh, people probably overestimate the value of tax loss harvesting. That um, you know you could potentially be out of the market for a period of time, and essentially what you're doing is you're deferring tax. Um, but it might not be that valuable, depending on your tax rate. So, I think it's important to take a look at the overall picture. If your portfolio needs to be rebalanced, and that involves um, selling some positions at a loss, certainly go ahead and do it. But a lot of the um, targeted tax loss harvesting that's being done is just kind of lowering your cost basis for the future, where tax rates might be higher. Right. Uh, one thing people don't appreciate so much is tax gain harvesting. And what is that? I love gain harvesting because there's uh, this window of opportunity in the tax code where you can recognize long-term capital gains at a 0% tax rate. Um, and that's not a very common tax rate. And so, married couples can have up to $101,400 of total income and still get this 0% uh, long-term capital gains rate. Um, so I think people think that or assume that they have to have this low income in order to get this gains harvesting benefit, uh, but that's not true. You can actually have a pretty substantial income and still reap those benefits. And there's no wash sale rule on that, right? I mean, you can right. you can sell it for a gain today and rebuy it tomorrow, and you're still realizing that zero percent long-term capital gain. That said, the more you sell, the more that does push you up. Like it increase like that, at some point you could sell so much that some of those gains will be taxable, right? 
Right. Yeah. If you go over that threshold, anything over that threshold is going to be subject to the next bracket up, which is fifteen percent. Right. But the stuff below that threshold is still zero. Is still tax free exactly. essentially. Depending on where you work, you might have a December thirty first deadline on spending the money in your flexible spending account. So that's definitely something to think about. Uh, if you don't have one, this also though might be the time of year to consider opening one because this is open enrollment season for a lot of folks, right? Exactly. And I'm a big proponent of a flex spending account. So when uh, fellow fools will come up and ask me about, you know, what are some benefits that not a lot of people use? I think the flexible spending account is one that is very underrated. People say, well, like I don't have that much in medical expenses. I don't know if it's worth it. I got to collect receipts. And uh, the fact is a lot of people have quote unquote medical expenses that could go through this flexible spending account program. There's a website called fsastore.com, which we have no affiliation with, but is fun to browse because everything on that website is eligible for uh, purchase via your flexible spending account. So I got some band-aids at a first aid kit and sunscreen. <laughs> uh, it's fun to do a little shopping spree on there. <laughs> um, and the other thing with flexible spending accounts is that you have to earn a lot more after tax than you think. So let's say you live in a state that has no tax and you're in the 24% bracket. The equivalent of getting $100 in your flexible spending account is earning 150 paying taxes on it, and then going and buying it. So when you multiply that out and see that you can um, have like $2,500 in your flex spending account, um, that really adds up quickly. Yeah. Well, that does sound like fun looking at that website. Have but, I convinced you? Yeah, you've convinced, but but maybe not as fun as another fun tax fact. <laughs> hey, this time we're going to Sweden. In Sweden, people are required to have their children's names approved by the Swedish tax agency really? before the child turns five. If the parent doesn't do it, they will be fined. 5,000 kroner, which is about $770. The law was originally put in place in 1982 to prevent citizens from using royal names. But the law <laughs> states that uh, the rationale is that by giving approval, the name, uh, approving a name, the tax agency can protect a child from an offensive or confusing name. So you cannot name your kid IKEA or Alla in Sweden, <laughs> but they recently approved Google and Lego. So name away. All right. So, uh, obviously, when you do your taxes, um, a lot will depend on how much you've had withheld throughout the year. Uh, that will determine whether you get your refund or whether you have to pay any. A recent GAO, GAO study found that, so far this year, they estimate that only 6% of people are withholding the right amount. And by right amount, they say with about $100 of what they should be. Most people are having too much withheld, but a large proportion are not having enough withheld. So, my first question for you, given that we only have about 11 weeks left in this year, do you think it's worthwhile for people to look at their withholdings for this year and try to change anything for these last couple of months? I think it could be. So, people that are going to be most affected by this uh, change that we've seen this year, so the, the TCJA also changed how employers are required to withhold tax. And for many people, that happened seamlessly. They were just using their old records on file, maybe when they started, and persisting those deductions into the future. And that can really hurt if you're someone who used to itemize a lot, uh, because that means under the new tax code, 
we're assuming that you're going to be taking deductions that you don't actually qualify for anymore. Um, so those are the people who are most likely to need an adjustment here at the end of the year uh, in order to get themselves up to speed on the tax that they should, probably should have been play, paying throughout the year. Um, that being said, I think a lot of times it's really just a matter of housekeeping, kind of checking in on that W-4. It's um, a really fun form, and <laughs> at least for <laughs> payroll people, um, and just sort of checking it and making sure it still makes sense. If you've gotten married, if you've had kids, if you um, just haven't looked at it in a while, kind of doing a sense check on that. What's the penalty? Like, how much do you have to underpay for you to worry about penalties? I mean, no one, no one really wants to underpay because then, come April fifteenth, you have to pay money. But how much does it have to be for you have to pay penalties on top of that? Yeah, you have to underpay uh, less than ninety percent of what you should have. Um, so if you owe just for round numbers, you owe $10,000 in taxes, but you only paid eight, uh, then you would be penalized for the, the $1,000 shortfall that you had over the course of the year. All right, so that brings us to the upcoming year, right? So we definitely, whether or not you should look at your withholdings too closely for this year, somewhat debatable, but definitely come December, you should be looking at what you're having withheld for 2019. Um, a couple of things that will be changing for 2019, probably, they have not been officially announced, is that um, the contribution limits on 401ks and IRAs will probably go up because they are adjusted in increments based on inflation. We actually saw some inflation this year. So, um, based on some analyses I've seen, we should expect those to go up. So, that's something to consider and budget for for the upcoming year. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, those aren't the only things that are adjusted for inflation. As are the, so, the standard deduction is tax brackets. All kinds of things do go up. So, that is one thing that will change your taxes. Anything else that's significantly different, though, for 2019? Yeah, one of the big things that was kind of a delayed implementation from the tax plan was uh, removing the mandate for Obamacare. So, under the old tax plan, uh, if you did not have adequate health insurance for the year, you had to basically pay a penalty for that. And um, going forward, that will not be the case. So you can kind of live free and easy and assume you're going to be healthy forever and not get insurance and not be penalized for it, uh, outside of maybe judgmental stares from others. <laughs> um, and the other thing that is sort of coming around the bend is that anyone who actually files a paper tax return will notice a difference in how that paper looks. Uh, it's a smaller form now. It's called like the postcard 1040. Um, I've never wanted to send my information for taxes on a postcard, so I don't know what's driving this. Um, but if you do sort of print out the actual form, you'll see that it's smaller, more condensed. Uh, it actually results in a lot more schedules in behind it. So if you already had a really fat tax return, if you printed it out, it's going to be even fatter. Right, and and it's it's kind of a symbolic thing, really, because it's something like ninety percent of people file electronically. Um, but if you are that person who prints things out or walks to the library to get that form, it is now at least uh, the main paper is postcard sized. Yeah. Do we have another fun tax fact? All right, for our final tax facts, I'm taking you to Kansas. <laughs> what an exciting journey we've been on. 
So in Kansas, untethered balloon rides, where the balloon is actually piloted somewhere, uh, would be considered carrying passengers and tax exempt. Uh, but if an air balloon is tethered and just goes up and then comes right back down, it is taxed. What? See, I told you I didn't have a strong one to end on. I didn't know how many of these you'd need. So I got also in New Mexico, 100, if you're 100 years older, you don't have to pay tax, income taxes. At all. At all. So if you're almost 100, just look at look look to moving there to save some taxes. Yeah. I think we'll see a great migration of centigenarians. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that was my last tax fact. Sorry it wasn't the real stunner. But hey, Megan, thank you so much for coming. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, that's the show. But before we go, I have a special request of our listeners. Because, bro, you and Rick, you know it, but I'm in the middle of moving. One of life's... Most joyous occasions. It is so great. Buying a house, selling a house, moving. It's all <laughs> awful. Packing up all your stuff, and then a couple of days later, taking it out of the box again. That's and just awesome. practically literally burning money for the privilege of being miserable for two weeks. It's <laughs> awesome. It's so exciting. So I want you, our Mollyful Answers listeners, to give me your best advice when it comes to selling your home, buying your home, and moving and uh, we'll just include it on the show in a future episode, and it'll also help me in my current situation, which is exciting, but also awful and terrifying, and I hate it. <laughs> anybody wants to throw in any extra advice on renovating, that would help me out. Oh yeah, Rick's going through a massive renovation. All right, so send me your advice and send Rick his advice about, I don't know, because I guess all things having to do with a home, so buying a home, selling a home, moving, or doing a renovation. Our email is answers at fool.com. You can also send us just your random questions that you might have for our upcoming mailbag episode. There's always one upcoming. <laughs> and of course, if you have any postcards left over from your travels, please send them on in. Our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. We love getting your postcards. Uh, Bro is also currently accepting Christmas cards and holiday cards as well. <laughs> Because he's already listening to holiday music on his headphones at work, aren't you? Admit it. It's always the most wonderful time of the year in my head. <laughs> All right. Well, the show is edited taxingly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Stay foolish, everybody.